Is the U.S. on the brink of war? The lead starts right now. Iran-backed Houthi forces vowing revenge after U.S. and U.K. strikes against them in Yemen. The firepower after repeated Houthi attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea. But will last night's retaliatory strikes keep Houthi groups at bay? And is President Biden ready for what might be next? In moments, I'm going to talk to a spokeswoman for the Pentagon. Plus, a blizzard creating a whiteout in Iowa three days before the state's Republican caucuses. How candidates are going with the backup plans to reach out to voters and try to get those voters to the caucuses on a very cold Monday. And the brother of an Israeli hostage told the lead this week that when his parents talked to the Red Cross to try to get their daughter her medicine while in captivity in Gaza, they were told they should be worried about the people of Gaza. The chief spokesman for the Red Cross is here to respond live from Geneva. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We do have huge news in our world lead, a dramatic U.S.-led escalation in the Middle East. The U.S. and the U.K., with the support of at least four other countries, bombed more than 60 targets in about 30 Iranian-backed Houthi militant locations in Yemen last night. The action following weeks of hostility by those well-armed militants in the Red Sea targeting commercial ships and endangering U.S. troops and freedom of navigation, according to the White House. The Houthis are Shia militants. They're considered a terrorist organization by the U.S. State Department until President Biden took them off the terrorist list in 2021. But moments ago, he said this. I think they are. Are the Houthis a terrorist group, sir? I think they are, he said. Houthis control most of northern Yemen. They see the destruction of Israel and the destruction of the United States as a fundamental part of their mission. Houthis claim that they've been targeting ships in the Red Sea, ships that have linked to Israel. The Red Sea is a waterway absolutely vital to the global economy, of course. It sees between 10 and 15 percent of all global trade and about 30 percent of global container shipping. Since the Houthis began their attacks, most commercial shipping companies have opted to instead reroute around Africa. The Houthi attacks are part of a pressure campaign against Israel orchestrated by Iran through its many proxies. And while President Biden insists last night's strikes will act as a warning to Iran and its proxies, there's really no way of predicting exactly how and when Houthis or Iran will respond. As the Houthis warn, American and British interests are, quote, legitimate targets. Many Republicans on Capitol Hill last night and this morning have applauded President Biden for the strike. Some Democrats, however, are upset since the president did not first ask Congress for authorization for the use of force. We're going to talk to one of those Democrats in the next hour. But let's start right now with CNN's Nick Robertson in Tel Aviv, Israel. And Nick, the United States and the United Kingdom, with support from Australia, Bahrain, Canada, the Netherlands, carried out this attack. How rare and significant is this sort of multi-country operation? Um, it's rare and it is significant because it comes at a time when the Houthis, backed by Iran, are adding to the destabilization in the region and specifically to the economic interests of so many countries around the world. So to pull together a coalition quickly to get a UN Security Council resolution telling the Houthis to desist, to have enough diplomacy to give the Houthis time to desist, they didn't, they upscaled their attacks. Um, this response is quite extraordinary. But yes, there is a potential for escalation. The Houthis run a ceasefire with, uh, in the internal civil war in, inside of Yemen, but also they've been firing recently, as recently as a couple of years ago, cruise missiles, or any made cruise missiles, at Saudi Arabia. So can Saudi now be back in the firing line as well? That's something they're worried about, Jake. 
Since the strikes, a U.S. official says the Houthis have fired at least one missile towards a commercial ship, though it, it, it missed. Do Western officials expect further mm. retaliation? Yeah, so look, that, that target package uh, last night was pretty much down the Red Sea on the western coast. This uh, international military operation, the navies are all there in the Red Sea. But go out of the Red Sea, go south down the Red Sea, through the Bab al-Mandab Strait and hang a left and go along the uh, Yemeni coast. You're in the Gulf of Aden. That's where the Houthis appear to have struck today with a missile 400, 500 meters from a ship uh, and three of their small attack boats, signature of how the Houthis attack these big shipping vessels. They came uh, into the picture there according to the captain of the ship. Now, that appears to have been another attempted Houthi attack, and it appears to be done outside the scope or location of that main uh, operating force, international operating force, to stop the Houthis doing this. So do they intend to carry on? They clearly do. It seems Iran is kind of just sitting back and reveling in this chaos that they've created. What is Iran's end goal here? At a moment, it appears to be regional destabilization to uh, further uh, encourage the belief that this is an attack by the United States and the UK, A, to protect Israel, and B, against the, the region more widely, Muslims more widely. Look, uh, the coalition here is striking specifically at military targets. Five, uh, five uh, Houthis were killed. They were Houthi targets, uh, military targets. Five Houthis were killed. Uh, military personnel were killed. Uh, six uh, were injured. No civilians, as far as we know. But Israel, their regional proxies like Hezbollah, like Hamas, are saying, no, this is not a strike against the Houthis and military targets. They're saying this is a strike against Yemen. So what the Iranians are trying to do is cloud the situation and draw their supporters in the region into thinking that the United States is trying to amp up the conflict at the moment. This all suits the Iranian narrative. Uh, very well to, to paint the United States as they always have as the big Satan. Nick Robertson in Tel Aviv, thanks so much. Joining us now at the Magic Wall, retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Steve Anderson. General, take us inside the military uh, decision-making here uh, for, and planning for the strike. Do you think that more U.S.-led strikes are going to follow? Well, it all depends, Jake, on the battle damage assessment that's ongoing right now. They're right now going through all their strategic intelligence. They're looking at uh, aerial photography. They're looking at drone footage. They're looking at trying to intercept communications. They're trying to determine just how successful this attack was. I mean, it's over a thousand you know, square miles in this area here. They hit 16 different locations. They got to feel pretty good about themselves right now. In, in, in the, the U.S. Same and the, the U.S. UK, yeah. is this, because they've been very successful, not only in taking down, most of this down, but they didn't have any civilian casualties that we're aware of. And of course, they didn't lose any aircraft. And that would have, of course, been a game changer if we lost an aircraft. So they got to feel pretty good about what they did. They're looking at how successful they were. And they want to make sure that they, if they, they miss some targets, they go back and they get them. All right. That's based on the initial assessment. Let's hope that stays, uh, that stays valid with the, the no uh, civilian casualties. Which weapons did the U.S. Uh, use and were they effective? I believe they absolutely were. So these are the assets that were used in the attack. So you had 150, uh, you had 80 Tomahawk missiles that were fired on these platforms right here. The Florida as a, as a attack submarine has 154. The Philippine Sea has 122. The Gravely and the Mason are both destroyers. They had 80 each. And they all engaged targets, about 80 or so were involved in this. They also had F-18s in, in the sky. And what the F-18 does is it provides the targeting. 
the laser pointing and designations that are needed and are so vital to make sure that they hit the actual targets. So very, very important that they were able to do this. The other thing I would say is they launched these from destroyers. Uh, we can see a video here of launching a, a destroyer, and here's a sub-launch video as well. Uh, again, these were fired from the sea of Red, the Red Sea, and they were very successful in hitting their targets initially, but they're conducting battle assessment right now to make sure that that, in fact, is the case. All right, retired U.S. Uh, Army Brigadier General Steve Anderson, thank you so much. Fascinating stuff. Let's bring in Deputy Pentagon Press Secretary Sabrina Singh now. Uh, Sabrina, thanks for joining us. So the Houthi attacks in the Red Sea have resulted in major disruptions to shipping while endangering U.S. service members. This has been going on for nearly three months since October 7th uh, when Hamas attacked Israel. Why did the U.S. and U.K. wait until now? Why now to strike? Thanks, Jake, for having me on. Well, today, last night's strike is when we felt the most comfortable that we would be able to effectively disrupt and degrade uh, Houthi capabilities that have been targeting commercial merchant vessels, ships that have been transiting throughout the Red Sea. We always reserve the right uh, to decide at a time and place of our choosing when we feel it is best to strike. And last night was that moment. And as you had your uh, Brigadier General on commenting on just some of the targeting and, and what we were able to strike, uh, we were uh, we are very confident in that in the uh, impact that we were able to leave on the Houthis. Again, as, as they are uh, probably trying to recalibrate and trying to think through next steps, we were able to hit uh, approximately 16 locations where they have been holding capabilities that have been targeting not only uh, commercial vessels, but of course other ships transiting that region. How did White House and Pentagon officials come to the conclusion that the strike would, would serve as a warning and perhaps deterrence and won't tip the Middle East into an all-out war involving the United States? Well, we certainly don't want to see this become a regional conflict. Again, our, our, uh, our, our target, our strikes last night, uh, we feel were proportionate into the over 25 attacks we have seen from Houthis uh, since November, as you mentioned, on different vessels transiting that region. We know how important that waterway is. Over 15 percent uh, flows, uh, flows through the Red Sea. Uh, we want to keep that open. We want to make sure that ships are able to transit freely. And so what you saw last night was a coalition of like-minded nations uh, coming together to uphold international, uh, the international rules-based order and uh, continue to protect ships that are, uh, that are moving through that Red Sea. We're told that uh, the Houthis have fired at least one missile onto yeah. a ship in the Red Sea since then. So does that mean the deterrence didn't work? I, I really wouldn't say that. Again, we, we are expecting a, and, and, and would expect some type of response. Again, that's one missile that failed, uh, that didn't thankfully damage um, any ships in the Red Sea. Uh, we're going to continue to monitor the situation. Again, we were, feel very confident that we were effective yesterday in being able to not only disrupt but degrade the capabilities that the Houthis have had access to. Just moments ago, President Biden was asked if Def yeah. Defense Secretary Austin showed a lapse in judgment by not providing notice of his hospitalization earlier. As you know, several days passed uh, before the president knew uh, that General, uh, I'm sorry, Secretary Austin uh, was in the hospital. Uh, when he was asked that question, uh, Biden said yes. Does the Pentagon have a response to that? I mean, the president said the secretary of defense showed a lapse in judgment. 
Well, the secretary did take responsibility for his actions there um, and, and, you know, did apologize for not notifying the White House about his procedure. Again, right now, what we are thinking of him here at the Pentagon is hoping that he recovers well, that he's able to turn, uh, return to work soon. Um, but he has been very active over the last 72 hours, been in touch with the president, the National Security Council, uh, the CENTCOM commander, and of course, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, monitoring the strike that happened last night. And um, we are really hoping for a speedy recovery for the secretary. How is Secretary Austin doing? He had prostate cancer and then he had complications uh, to that, to that uh, cancer. It's all very serious. Um, how is he? Uh, you know, he's doing well. Uh, he's on the mend. Um, we're, we're hoping for a, a speedy recovery so he can he can come back. I, I'm, I know he certainly wants to be back here at work. Uh, but again, he's been incredibly active over this last week, uh, not only monitoring the strike last night, but as you might remember, and I know you covered this uh, on Tuesday, we saw one of the biggest barrage attacks from the Houthis on um, vessels transiting through the Red Sea. So he's been monitoring both in touch with the White House, in touch with his staff, and will continue to do so. How exactly does that work if he's in the hospital? Because obviously this is sensitive matter. Uh, there's a thing called a skiff uh, yeah. where, you know, in the, they have him in the Pentagon, they have him at the White House where it's a, a secure place uh, where no one can spy. Is there a skiff at the hospital? There is. He does have access to a skiff. He has access to a whole suite of his communications. He's able to keep in touch on secure lines with his team, with the Central Command commander on the ground, getting real-time updates as they were coming in last night. So he is fully equipped to monitor everything that happened last night and all around the world. Um, and so, again, he's, a he's able to do that from where he is right now. Uh, and, of course, we are looking forward to having him back here in the Pentagon. I want your take on something that sure. we heard from the former U.N. ambassador and Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley on the campaign trail this week when she was asked about Secretary Austin's hospitalization and the fact that people didn't know about it. Yeah. I think Biden should be fired. This is unbelievable that we have a situation like this. I have a problem with the fact that Biden is not talking to his secretary of defense every single day anyway. Yeah, it's, is it not common practice for the president to speak with the secretary of defense daily uh, while two consequential wars rage? They do speak quite often. Uh, again, we're coming off of a holiday period. They are in touch frequently. Our staffs, I can tell you, are on, in touch almost on an hourly basis. Um, again, there was no lapse in command of control. Our national security was never at risk. Uh, and I, I would, again, reiterate the fact that the secretary did not only apologize, but take responsibility uh, for not notifying the White House of his own procedure that, that did occur. Again, and, and also I'll stress that we are doing a 30-day review to examine our own processes here. To, to examine what worked and what did not work. Um, and when we have those results, of course, we will be previewing those as well. I know. It just, it just seems odd yeah. to me. I just have to say, I mean, this is not the director of the Bureau of Weights and Measurements. This is the Secretary of Defense. And there are two major wars that the U.S. is involved in one way or another in Ukraine uh, and Gaza with Israel. And the, President Biden and Secretary Austin don't talk every day. Again, they, they do have frequent communications. I will tell you, and I can reassure you, our staffs, our teams are in constant communication with each other. And the secretary is, uh, you will not meet someone that works harder than the secretary of defense. Uh, again, he, is, he has a, a short 40 year uh, service here in uh, the military. Um, he prides himself on the fact that he has been able to serve his country. Uh, he is in touch with his uh, team here at the Pentagon, with the White House, uh, monitoring everything that's going on uh, around the world. And uh, right now, you know, he's focused on getting better, focused on returning to work, uh, but is able to keep in touch with the White House, uh, just like we saw last night. 
No one's disputing how hard he works. But anyway, Deputy Pentagon Press Secretary Sabrina Singh, thanks so much for, for joining us today. My next guest spent more than three decades with the CIA investigating potential threats. We're going to get his reaction to all of this and whether or not the U.S. is on the brink of, of a larger war, plus the ghost town on Iowa streets right now as a blizzard moves through. Certainly not good news for candidates trying to get their message out to voters and trying to get voters to turn out on Monday for the Iowa caucuses. We're going to go live to Des Moines. And this just in, it's uh, some breaking good news. A major update on a story that the lead has been following closely. U.S. Navy officer Ridge Alconis has been paroled and is back with his family. He has been released from a U.S. prison. We're going to bring you that next. We've got some amazing breaking news for you on this Friday. Part of a story we've been following here for lead for years on the lead. U.S. Navy officer Lieutenant Ridge Alconis is now free from prison and has been reunited with his family. Here's a photo that uh, Brittany just sent me. You can see them happily reunited uh, on their way back from prison. This is after the U.S. Parole Commission ordered the lieutenant's immediate release. Lieutenant Alconis, as you might remember, he was stationed abroad in Japan. He was sentenced to three years in a Japanese prison back in October 2021 for a car accident. He says he suffered acute mountain sickness while driving with his family down from Mount Fuji, and that caused him to lose consciously and, and consciousness and tragically to, to cause a deadly car accident. Um, Lieutenant Alconis was transferred to the U.S. in December and booked into a federal prison in California. Now he is home. And we'll bring you more on that story next week. Staying in our world lead, we want to step back and put these latest strikes against the Houthi rebels in Yemen in, in the larger context as the U.S., Israel, and Iran weigh how their actions could ignite a war that engulfs the entire Middle East. We're going to get insights right now from Norman Rule, who spent 34 years in the CIA, including senior roles focused on Iran. And also with us in studio is Barack Ravid. It is an Israeli journalist for Axios and a foreign policy analyst for CNN. Norman, let me start with you. What do you think Iran's going to do now? And will these strikes make it more or less likely that we're going to see an outright war if you had to guess? Well, Iran is going to focus on issuing harsh, defiant rhetoric, demonstrating with the Houthis that some fighting capability remains, spending time assessing the damage to see what remaining capabilities exist after the U.S. attack and how they can deploy them, and last to see what other attacks can be done through, through proxies. I don't think Iran is interested in a war. They know that we have massive capabilities with which they can compete, but they do seek to have the U.S., Israel, and the West in general under a state of political, economic, and even military siege. The question now becomes, well, how will we define success in such a conflict, which may well be long-term, and require resources that we're also sharing with Israel and Ukraine in their fight? Barack Ravid, uh, what impact might this have on Israel's war with Hamas right now? Um, I'm not sure it will have a lot of impact. I think, if anything, the Israelis are very happy, that's at least what I heard from Israeli officials, that the U.S., U.K., and several other countries took action against the Houthis without making any linkage and connection to what's going on in Gaza, and that Israel didn't have to do it on its own. Because for a long time, Israel thought it will have to do something because the Houthis also attacked many, many uh, Israeli ships and fired missiles at Israel. And I think they are very satisfied that this was done without their participants at all. Or being blamed at exactly, all, or exactly. responsible by the yeah. U.S. or the U.K. Uh, Norman, we're, also, we're all already hearing from progressive Democrats on the Hill uh, that this is essentially the fault of Israel's war on Hamas, uh, that that's why the Houthis are doing this. 
How do you think uh, this might affect U.S.-Israel relations, if at all? Well, to be clear, the Israel's war on Hamas is because of Hamas's war in Israel, which Hamas refuses to end and will not surrender. Certainly, the United States is going to call for a reduced intensity of operations, humanitarian assistance for Palestinians, and hostage release. But Hamas actions on their own are going to dictate how this conflict goes. It's a very tough battle area. It's going to see a lot more Israeli military uh, uh, casualties. This conflict will extend for some time, albeit at a lower intensity. And, and Barack Ravid, you talked about the uh, the response from Israeli officials. How about the Israeli uh, the public? We know that families of the hostages uh, remain vocal on the desire to keep the focus on freeing their loved ones. Still, more than a hundred uh, Israelis, the, the, uh, the Israeli government believes, being held uh, in Gaza. Um, are there any fears that, that this strike against the Houthis are going to take uh, attention away from that? Um, I think so. I think that um, domestically in Israel, the pressure on Netanyahu and his government is growing by the day to take a strategic decision that says, what's more important? Is it dismantling Hamas or freeing the hostages? Because those two cannot live together. You have to choose one over the other. And Netanyahu is under a lot of pressure to take this decision inside the Israeli war cabinet. There are uh, members like Benny Gantz who say we need to prioritize the hostages. On the other hand, Minister of Defense Gallant says we need to prioritize dismantling Hamas. And this is the tension right now inside Israel. When it comes to what we saw uh, in Yemen last night, I think what you hear from many Israelis is sort of, you know, we told you so. Meaning, uh, we have to remember the Biden administration. Uh, they took the Houthis off took the, the terrorist off list. Terror yeah. terrorist list. I mean, we just saw President Biden uh, say that uh, there are terrorists. So, you know, one might wonder if there are terrorists. Why are they off the list? Why are they off the list? Uh, you know, I, at least for now, uh, the White House didn't walk back uh, President Biden's uh, statement. Maybe they will start doing it uh, pretty soon. But I think there's a bigger picture here, as we said a few minutes ago, and this is that. Hamas, at the end of the day, backed by Iran. Hezbollah, we see what's going on on the Israel-Lebanon border. It's backed by Iran. Uh, militias in Syria, backed by Iran. And the Houthis are backed by Iran. And the Iranians, for, for now, I think, are sitting pretty comfortably, comfortably into Iran and looking at what's going on and saying, OK, we're, nobody's going to touch us. Right, because these are our, our, the proxies, but not us ourselves. And then they, you know, they are very comfortable because the U.S. and Israel and the U.K. and many other countries are sort of wasting their strength and capital and energy on the proxies and not on where this whole thing comes from. Interesting. Okay. Barack Ravid and Norman Rule, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Parts of Iowa right now are buried in snow with temperatures well below zero. The weather is forcing Republican candidates running for president to change their plans with only three days to go before caucuses. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. And our 2024 lead, come on guys, cue the election jam. You know our, all right, thank you so much. The Iowa caucus countdown tops our 2024 lead. Only three days, three days remaining for Republican presidential candidates to make their final pitches. But the ground game is tough because the ground is literally frozen and covered in snow. As CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports now from Des Moines. I don't necessarily, as a Floridian, want to be in negative 20 degree temperatures, but I know we're the campaign that's built to turn out our people in negative Three days before the Iowa caucuses, the closing arguments of the Republican race come with a winter weather warning. Yes, I know it's cold on Monday, but I'm going to be out there. A blizzard and the forecast for a dangerous record-setting cold spell are testing the fortitude of campaign organizations built by Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, and even frontrunner Donald Trump, who's been warning his supporters against complacency. Pretend you're one point down, okay? You're one point down! You have to get out and you have to vote, vote, vote! Snow and bitter winds scrambled the plans of candidates today, canceling rallies and speeches designed to build momentum heading into the final weekend. DeSantis dropped by a campaign office. Every phone call, every door, everything we do between now and caucus night is going to make a difference. As Haley held telephone town hall meetings. Please wear layers of clothes just in case they're aligned so that you are staying safe. And please go in there and know that you are setting the tone for the country. Those rivals are locked in a bitter duel to become the leading alternative to Trump. I personally think it's time to move forward. Bill Funk twice voted for Trump. But he spent the last year looking for a new choice. I think that it's time for this country to come together. I think it's time to put a leader in there that can bring us together and move us forward and heal some of the past. We've had too much chaos. His wife Connie is an independent. For much of their 45-year marriage, they've canceled one another's vote. Now they're both supporting Haley. I'm saying my prayers. I, I feel like we have this opportunity to show a different side to what politics can be. And Nikki is the person I feel that can do that. Haley is hoping for a strong turnout in the suburbs. Hi, how's it going? Did you sign up online? I did. Thank you. Okay, what was your last name? While DeSantis has been working toward broader support in all corners of the state. We're excited about having gone to all 99 counties. Trump is counting on loyal followers, particularly in rural areas, to help build a landslide victory with an organization far stronger and more sophisticated than in 2016. We got to get out and vote because, you know, bad things happen when you sit back. Christina Brecky voted for Trump and considered doing so again, but late last year had a change of heart. With the way the country is going right now, I think people are looking for something else. Now, she's supporting the Florida governor, who today called this uh, winter weather storm a major 
wild card. And Jake, that is no uh, understatement there. The reality here is that the uh, campaigns are doing a uh, an array of contingency plans for how to get their supporters to the caucuses Monday night. They're concerned about them waiting in lines, their cars starting, etc. But the Iowa caucuses begin this process, but it's also a critical juncture for the Republican Party. This will be the first time that actual voters have a chance to render a verdict on the former president if they want to slow his march to the nomination or simply set him on a glide path. So, Thank Jeff, you. just just for people watching at home, Jeff Zeleny is from Nebraska and he worked for the Des Moines Register for years. If Jeff Zeleny is wearing earmuffs during a stand up, then it is cold then it is very, very cold because this man is made of hardy stock. Jeff Zeleny in Des Moines, thanks so much. Appreciate it. This programming note, our coverage of the 2024 Iowa caucuses next Monday will begin at 4 p.m. Eastern here on CNN. That's the lead. That's, that's when you need to tune in, the lead. Next today, a strong claim made right here on the lead. The brother of an Israeli hostage currently being held in Gaza by Hamas says that his parents uh, tried to get the Red Cross to help get medicine to their daughter. She needs it every day. They were told by the Red Cross, they say, that they should be worried about the Palestinian people in Gaza instead. The chief spokesman for the Red Cross is here to respond live from Geneva. Stay with us. In our world lead, since the October 7th terrorist attack by Hamas on Israel, the International Committee of the Red Cross has faced a difficult and challenging mission to try to save lives and to try to prevent the suffering of people caught in the middle of this conflict that Hamas started with Israel. Now, they're on the ground inside Gaza right now trying to make sure that aid gets to those who need it most. The Red Cross has played a critical role in helping the freed hostages depart Gaza safely. And at one point, the Red Cross was hoping to be the neutral party to reach the hostages to assess their conditions and their health. But Hamas prevented that access. Now. Some Israeli leaders and families are publicly sharing their frustrations over how all of this has unfolded. Just last month, families and released hostages sued the International Committee of the Red Cross in an Israeli court, arguing that this is now medical neglect. The families also say, many of them, that the Red Cross has shown bias in some of its public comments. Some viewers might remember a moment from just a few days ago when the brother of one of the hostages, the hostage named Doron Steinbrecher, told me that his parents heard a pretty shocking comment from a Red Cross staffer. They were pleading with the staffer for the Red Cross to get medicine to their daughter, Daron, who is being held so unjustly in Gaza. And take a listen. My mom had a few meets with the, with the Red Cross, and she told them, my sister need to get her medicine. Yeah. And they told her that... Uh, we should uh, care more about the Arab people on the other side. Ewan Watson, the chief spokesman for the International Committee of the Red Cross, joins us now live from uh, Geneva. Mr. Watson, thanks for being here. Um, obviously, uh, our hearts go out to all the suffering people, innocent people, whether in Gaza or in Israel. Um, but to hear it from the parents of Daron Steinbrecher, your representative said something rather shocking and insensitive to them. Well, uh, Jake, thanks for having me on. And I, I, I want to start by saying that we really acknowledge and respect the deep, uh, unimaginable suffering that the families of loved ones held uh, hostage in Gaza uh, must be feeling. It's our mission as the International Committee of the Red Cross to try and help them, to listen to them, 
uh, and uh, ultimately to explain the the ways in which we could potentially help. And uh, I really regret that, that this particular family left this meeting uh, having heard something else. Uh, I want to really assure uh, that family and everybody listening and other families that we care deeply about uh, the hostages. And uh, since day one, we have reiterated the fact that it is uh, prohibited to hold hostages under international humanitarian law. And we continue to seek access to those hostages. We want to bring medicine to them. Uh, that is absolutely critical. We want them also to be reconnected, to be uh, able to uh, have some sort of connection to their family members. Uh, and we won't rest until we've been able to do that. So it did seem as though this employee told the Steinbrechers that they shouldn't worry about their daughter. And she's 30 years old. Who knows what is happening to her at the hands of Hamas? She needs medicine every day. She's not getting it. And it does seem like a Red Cross employee said to them, well, you shouldn't be worried about that. You should be worried about the poor people of Gaza. Um, what are you guys doing about it? Have you investigated this matter? Has this person been reprimanded? Do you want to apologize to the Steinbrecher family? What I can say is that that is not a message that our employees would ever wish to pass to this family or any other family. Uh, from our perspective, uh, we care deeply about each and every one of those hostages held. As a neutral humanitarian organization, we do not rank suffering. We would never seek to compare suffering between different people or seek to elevate or, or diminish uh, one person's suffering over another's. That is a simply something that we would never do. So I'm really sorry that, that this family heard that message during this meeting. Uh, and I want to really reiterate today that that is not our message, that our message quite to the contrary is that we deeply care about their loved, one, loved ones and we're doing everything we can to help them. But why do you put it that way, that you're sorry that they heard that message as opposed to you're sorry that somebody at the Red Cross said this to them? I mean, my understanding is that no employee would want to pass that message. So. I, I think what I can be confident in telling you is that nobody in the Red Cross would ever seek to pass the message that we were somehow minimizing or diminishing that family's suffering or suggesting that they shouldn't think about their loved one being held. I mean, the fundamental objective, the whole mission of the Red Cross, of each and every one of our employees, is to alleviate the suffering right. of civilians. But you're not acknowledging that, that anybody for, said that. You're not acknowledging, I mean... Do you think there was a misunderstanding? Or are you saying the Steinbrechers are lying? I mean, why aren't you assuming responsibility for Not what? at all. So the, the, Not the at all. I am, I am absolutely res assuming responsibility in the sense that I fully respect that is what the family heard and took away from that meeting. And I'm deeply regretful that that was the case because that's absolutely not the type of message that we are hoping to pass. We're hoping to pass a message of being in a position to listen to that family and ultimately to be able to help with uh, visiting their loved ones and, yes, bringing medicine uh, once we have permission to do so. But why do you keep putting it that way, that you, this is the, what the family heard as opposed to this is what somebody at the Red Cross said? I, I don't think that somebody in the Red Cross would ever try and uh, pass that message, Jake. I, I really don't. I but, have so, to so are you saying, or just, well, you're not being I clear, though. I think there though. may have been a misunderstanding. You think it was a misunderstanding? You think that they said something and then the Steinbrechers misunderstood what was said? 
well, whatever the reason, I wasn't in the room and I, and I can't speculate on what the reason is and I wouldn't seek to. But what I can say is that we would never seek to rank suffering in that way or diminish or, or, or put their deep concerns and pain. No, but you're to playing these. But you're playing. Uh, look, I look. I don't doubt your sincerity, but you're playing these word games, and I don't understand it. Like, one of it, one of our employees said something bad, and we're sorry for it. That's ownership. Saying the Steinbrecher family were sorry that they heard something. I mean, are you saying that they didn't understand the language? Are you saying that there was like? that they imagined it, that they thought it was a fairy whispering in their ear, some magical, like what, what, mean, ex what exactly are you saying? I think this, this, uh, I, I, as I said, I, I don't know exactly where this, uh, this came from, why they feel like this. I can only why they apologize feel like because this? I do not want them. Yes, because I, I think uh, what the ICRC is always hoping to do is to pass a message of caring equally for civilians on all sides of But the you know you're failing to and, do that right I've now said, because you're not even acknowledging that the, that the, your employee said that. I mean, I, I don't doubt that the, the Red Cross does unbelievably important work around the world, but for whatever reason, there seems to be just some sort of disconnect and you can't even just say, we're so sorry that this employee said that. I mean, but you're not saying that. You're saying that if, they heard if, it or they felt a certain way. Yeah. Jake, if that employee said that, I am really apologetic and uh, I, I deeply regret that. My understanding if. is that, that that simply is something that the family, and I completely respect that, but that they took away from the meeting, which is a message that we would never, ever seek to pass because you're it saying goes this is a family that has a daughter who's been kidnapped. They don't even know if she's alive. They don't know right. if she's being raped, whatever. Yeah. And one of your employees, according to them, said, you should be more concerned about the people of Gaza. Uh, and a lot of Israelis find that quite credible, I'll be honest, because, I mean, look at the social media uh, campaign or the social media posts by the ICRC. Um, there are so many posts criticizing Israel, which, okay, fine. That's your entitlement. You're entitled to do that. And, and, the, and the number of posts criticizing Hamas just numerically pales in comparison. Um, and, you know, these families, more than 100 of them, uh, still are suffering and still say, well, how come nobody in the international community cares about this? And, and there is so much suffering going on in Gaza, and I'm not diminishing any of it. We cover it every day. But you position yourself as a neutral organization and your social media posts are like seven to one criticizing Israel versus criticizing the group that attacked on October 7th and set off this, this horrific thing that's going on right now. Jake, what I want to emphasize here is that time and time again, we have come out publicly and even more importantly, perhaps behind closed doors, advocating behind the scenes for those hostages to be released, for them to receive the medicine that they require, for them to be reconnected with family members. This is something that we have said publicly, that we have uh, said to all parties uh, to the conflict and others with power, including the leader of Hamas, who our president met a couple uh, of months ago. We continue at the very highest level to push for this. We've also really insisted on many occasions that they are simply released because they should not be held in the right. first place. 
these are messages that we continue to pass and we are absolutely focused on them. We really why, do care. Why won't Hamas let, let the why won't Hamas let the Red Cross visit the hostages uh, and, and I mean there are obviously a lot of fears based on what we've heard from other hostages, based on images of what we saw, based on what happened to Israeli girls and women on October 7th, that these women are being raped and sexually assaulted. Um, what is the position of the Red Cross when it comes to Hamas denying you access? We uh, are very clear on this in the sense that we are, we are pleading we are discussing each and every day with all parties and all those with influence, including Hamas, to let us in. I, I, I can't speak to Hamas's reasons for not doing that, but we will not rest until those doors have been opened and that we're allowed to go in. But we need an agreement to be in place for that to happen. We understand the frustrations that many feel with the Red Cross because uh, in some people's eyes, we're not doing enough, we're not pushing enough, we're not saying enough. But believe me, behind closed doors, which is where we think we have most chance of actually having the result, which we all want to see, which is that they're released, that we have access to them. We are pushing as hard as we can and at the highest level. And we'll continue to do that. We won't be satisfied until those medicines are in the hands of the people that need them. All right. Well, God bless you in that mission. We really hope that uh, you succeed. You and Matt Watson with the International Committee of the Red Cross, thanks so much for joining us. And we'll be right back. In our health lead, the new year is bringing wider access and new ways for women in America to get birth control pills. The manufacturer of O-Pill, the first government-approved over-the-counter birth control pill, says its products soon will be available in stores and online. In addition, 29 states and the District of Columbia have passed laws allowing pharmacists to prescribe or provide contraception without a doctor's prescription. First, one word of caution, wider access may come with higher out-of-pocket costs, depending on your health insurance, or lack thereof. President Biden taking some heat over these retaliatory strikes in Yemen, a Democratic lawmaker who says Congress needed to have a say, joins me next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, how about this for our question of the day? Quote, Bonnie Willis, what are you thinking? Exactly, Patricia Murphy. Murphy's a top opinion writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, asking that of District Attorney Fonnie Willis, who has yet to deny that she has a romantic relationship with a special prosecutor she hired. The stunning scandal detailed in legal briefs in the Georgia case against Donald Trump. CNN was at the first hearing today since the allegations were revealed. Plus, inside the Iowa caucuses, exactly how does this very American, very bizarre process work. And why does Iowa opt for this versus the more popular and easy primary process where voters just line up and vote in the polls? And leading this hour, what could be a worsening global crisis for President Biden? Iranian-backed Houthi militants now warning of retaliation against the U.S. and its allies for strikes against Houthis in Yemen last night. The White House insists these were self-defense strikes intended to protect U.S. troops and global commerce after a string of Houthi attacks in recent weeks on commercial ships in the Red Sea. 
The Houthis' actions have not only threatened lives, they've effectively shut down to most of the shipping companies, one of the world's main trade routes. Let's get straight to CNN's Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon. Orrin, why did the U.S. and its allies decide to carry out these strikes now when Houthi attacks have been going on for months? Jake, the administration tried to use any sort of diplomatic pressure it could over the course of the last couple of weeks. In fact, since the beginning of January, we have seen the UN Security Council resolution passed a couple of days ago condemning Houthi attacks on shipping in the Red Sea, one of the world's most critical waterways. We saw the multinational statement about a week before that trying to get the Houthis uh, to stop attacking international shipping. And yet the attacks continued. Given that, the U.S. felt that not only was it acting alone here, it had international backing. It had the U.K.'s support when it took its military action, and it had the backing and support of several other countries, Canada, Bahrain, the Netherlands, Australia, to carry out the strike. It is now beyond the diplomatic message because there was... Uh, uh, the sense, and frankly, what we were seeing happening was that the Houthis kept attacking international shipping, and the U.S. felt it got to the point where the Houthis, and frankly, Iran, who backs the Houthis, uh, needed a stronger message. The U.S., the U.K., and the others felt compelled to act here, hitting nearly 30 Houthi targets in Yemen, targets that not were not intended to start a wider war, but that were intended to take away from and limit the Houthis' ability to target international shipping. And Oren, the Houthis are threatening retaliation. Uh, what could that look like? First, they could attack different U.S. assets. They could attack either vessels in the Red Sea. We've seen them try that. Or they could attack U.S. bases in other parts of the Middle East. They certainly have the capabilities to do that with ballistic missiles as well. Or they could try to attack U.S. allies in the region, whether it's trying to launch ballistic missiles or drones at Israel or at several other countries. So they have their options, they have the capabilities, and the U.S. went into this knowing all of those were possible and now waiting to see how the Houthis respond, which is something they have very much promised to do. The White House says that they're confident they have the legal authority to carry out these strikes, but there's some members of Congress who disagree. What's their argument? This is an important point. By the U.S. Constitution, only Congress can authorize an act of war, and they weren't given authorization of this. They were simply notified that it was going to happen. The Biden administration says these actions were in self-defense, that U.S. vessels and assets were targeted, and because of that, the president had the authority to act. But this clearly wasn't a quick response. Given the number of countries involved here, given the level of coordination this required, this clearly involved a tremendous amount of planning. And, and because of all that, because of what went into this operation, the scope of it, the size of it, those members of Congress are arguing, look, Congress needed to authorize these strikes on Yemen, not simply a presidential act. It's in that space between an act of self-defense and a larger planned operation. That's their argument that this needed congressional authorization. All right, Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon, thanks. Joining us now is Democratic Congressman Mark Pocan of Wisconsin. Congressman, thanks for joining us. So you said in response to these strikes uh, against the Houthis that, quote, the United States cannot risk getting entangled into another decades-long conflict without congressional authorization, unquote. Now, the White House says uh, that these strikes were in self-defense. Do you disagree? I'm losing. I, we don't have something's wrong with the volume there, uh, sir. Uh, we're going to have to uh, rejigger that. And let's bring in a Senator Joni Ernst uh, from Iowa. And then we'll go back to Congressman Mark Pocan once we have his audio uh, worked out. Senator, um, you tweeted that the strikes were, quote, long overdue. Uh, if the Houthis continue their attacks, what should the U.S. do next? And are you not worried uh, about this escalating until it becomes a direct military conflict with Iran? 
Well, Jake, uh, thank you for having me. I am not worried about a greater conflict. What I am concerned about is that the Houthis have been striking our service members serving in the Middle East region without any retaliation. And the Houthis have gone even farther now and are striking carrier vessels, those uh, ships that are out there transporting goods uh, through the Red Sea. And this can't stand. We can no longer allow them to strike willy-nilly at our service members and just pray that they don't end up killing an American. Uh, we do have to strike back. Um, I would say that, yes, I think Congress does need to be involved, but this clearly to me is self-defense, and I wish it would have happened much sooner. So you're a veteran of the Army Reserves and the Iowa Army National Guard. You served in Kuwait and Iraq. Uh, you got to visit U.S. troops when you were in the Middle East. How worried um, are you? You say that you're, you don't think this is going to be uh, a, a lead to a larger uh, military conflict or a showdown between the United States and Iran. Um, but you must be worried at least a little bit. I mean, you served. You know the kinds of people that served. You, you met uh, individuals who served. I mean, it's not outside the realm of possibility. I mean, how do you, why are you confident? Well, I am confident in our military, and I did have the great opportunity to visit with our service members on my recent trip to the Middle East. We visited with a commander of um, Navy Central Command, as well as the Fifth Fleet, and those sailors, uh, the airmen and soldiers and the Marines that are serving across the Middle East are extremely capable. They are prepared. They know about the Houthi attacks and they know how to strike back. And we saw that demonstrated quite well. Um, I do worry about Iran. I will be honest about that, but I don't think these attacks on the Houthis are going to escalate into a wider conflict. I do think that if uh, we don't see the decimation of Hamas and uh, continue pushing back on Hezbollah. If all of those things interconnected aren't kept under control, it is quite possible we see escalation. But I don't see it just simply with these attacks on the Houthis. In a CNN debate Wednesday um, that Dana Bash and I moderated, Governor Nikki Haley said she disagrees with calls uh, from some of the extreme right-wingers in Netanyahu's cabinet in Israel uh, that hundreds of thousands of Palestinians should be forcibly removed from Gaza uh, Governor Ron DeSantis said that basically he would support any move by Israel if they felt like they needed to do that to avoid a second Holocaust. Where do you come down on the issue of these calls from Ben Gavir and Smotrich and extremists in the, uh, in the Netanyahu cabinet to forcibly remove hundreds of thousands of Palestinians from Gaza? Well, I would disagree with a forcible removal of those Palestinians. Um, but what I would say is that Hamas is widely supported uh, by a number of the Palestinians that live in the Gaza Strip. Uh, this this group needs to be de-radicalized. Uh, unfortunately, many of those Palestinians who support Hamas do want to see the Jewish state wiped off the face of the earth, and we can't allow this to happen. So what I would say is that we need to make sure that Hamas is decimated. That is Israel's intent under Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Those terrorists need to be gone. But then we need to see the demilitarization and the de-radicalization of those Palestinians that live in the Gaza Strip. 
these uh, groups can peaceably live together. We need to find a solution. Um, we discussed that on the recent trip to the Middle East, but large in part what we focused on as our congressional delegation was the return of the American hostages that are currently held by Hamas. We do have six individuals that are still being held in the Gaza Strip. Yeah. So you're, uh, you're one of the two senators from, um, from Iowa. Uh, let's switching topics for a second. We're just three days away from the Iowa caucuses. You, you've said you're going to remain neutral throughout the caucuses. Uh, do you plan to endorse after you see what happens on Monday? Well, it will be interesting. I haven't decided yet whether I will endorse after the caucuses, but Jake, you're right. I will remain neutral. Senator Chuck Grassley and I want to welcome all of these wonderful candidates into our great state of Iowa. And we want those Iowa voters to decide who they want to support come Monday evening. So we'll see, Jake. You'll have to follow up with me later. All right. Yeah, I know you're going to bring me the big scoop. Republican Senator Joni Ernst of (laughs) Iowa, thanks so much for joining us. Let's reconnect with Congressman Mark Pocan to get uh, his response. That's going to be next. Plus that blizzard in Iowa, the snow will soon stop, but below zero temperatures will be around when the Iowa caucuses begin Monday evening. How much are people worried about turnout? I'm going to talk to a Republican strategist watching the forecast closely. We're back with our world lead and the domestic and international reactions after the U.S.-led airstrikes against Houthi targets in Yemen. I want to bring back Democratic Congressman Mark Pocan of Wisconsin, whose Bluetooth has been sorted out so we can hear you now, Congressman. So you're not happy that Congress did not get to approve these strikes. The White House says the strikes were in self-defense. Do you disagree with that? Well, I think, you know, the president has notified Congress, and now it really is up to Congress to decide, according to the War Powers Resolution, uh, it is Congress that has to decide if we're going into to war. So the right thing to do now would be for Congress to make this decision should they continue attacks. But the bigger issue, Jake, is this is what many of us were warning about all the way back to October when the entire uh, situation started in Israel and Gaza, uh, the terrible attack on October 7th. Uh, but since then, you know, watching uh, what's been going on, there's been so much done by the Netanyahu government that could make this a regional war we have been very weary of that and we don't want that Uh, the last thing i think many of us want uh, is to have to send any american young men or women uh, overseas for something that's not a primary united states interest and uh, what we're worried about is when you start uh, having additional conflicts with hezbollah or the houthis or iran it becomes a regional conflict and that opens up the opportunity for young Americans uh, to have to put their lives uh, on the line. So that's the concern that many of us have, is that uh, Congress has to be involved from the very beginning per the war resolution. And the president did the right thing by notifying Congress within the amount of time. Now we have to decide. So obviously Iran backs Hamas and Hamas did the attack on October 7th. uh, And Iran backs Hezbollah even more directly. uh, And Hezbollah has been attacking Israel as well. Um, but you're saying that this is the responsibility of Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, that the Houthis are doing this? I mean, is, it, is there not just enough suggestion there that these Iran proxies, whether it's Hamas or Hezbollah or the ones in Syria and Iraq attacking U.S. troops, that, that the Iranians and their proxies are the ones that, that started this? So if, first of all, um, and I can't go into classified uh, material, but I, I'm not sure if it's clear that Iran had anything to do with the October 7th attack. No, no, but uh, they generally support to, Hamas. I mean, they, they generally support them. 
Right. But the problem is the response has not been justifiably would be an attack on Hamas after October 7th. But when 23,000 people, including over 8,000 children, have been killed in Gaza and over 2 million of the 2.3 million people have been displaced from their homes, um, one would argue that that is a collective punishment of the Palestinian people in Gaza. And that's what has been uh, spoken out about by the Houthis, by Hezbollah and others. What we don't want to happen, I mean, that is not in the U.S. interest. The U.S. interest, clearly laid out by President Biden, has been a two-state solution to have peace in the region. And Benjamin Netanyahu has ruled that out. Uh, if he's not acting in the U.S. interest, we have to be more aggressive in saying something. I, I use this in, in a common way. If you're out with, with a friend drinking, and Israel's a friend to the United States, and they've had too much to drink, and they want to drive home, it's your responsibility to say, no, you've had too much to drink, you can't get behind the wheel, because they are your friend. We need to do more of that, I think, right now, given the conditions and what Israel is doing in this collective punishment that it appears of the, the Palestinians in Gaza, because otherwise it could make this a regional war and that should concern everyone. There, there's a disconnect, Jake, between people uh, who are the, the war hawks, the defense contractors who support members of Congress in Washington yeah. and real people back in Wisconsin who are seeing this on TV 8,000 dead children plus are clearly not Hamas. And that's what I hear from my constituents. So let's posit that the dead citizens, especially the dead children in Gaza, it's horrible and it's awful and it's heartbreaking to watch and to, to, to be part of in any way. And let's also posit let, that, let's remove Netanyahu from the equation for one second. What should Israel have done? What do you think is the appropriate response when the government of the territory next door sworn to destroy you and kill your citizens sends hundreds of i don't know if you want to call them fighters or terrorists whatever they are into your country they slaughter more than 1200 people they literally burn babies rape girls kidnapped old people what should israel have done they should respond and go after Hamas. The problem is Hamas probably is 30,000 people by most estimates we have seen, but there are 2.3 million Palestinians and others uh, living in Gaza. And clearly this response has not been a surgical attack right, like we but, saw but, quite but, honestly in, in, in Beirut when they recently took out a Hamas leader. But you know, when you kill 100 people to kill one member of Hamas, which has happened in some of the, as even the president said, indiscriminate bombing that's occurred, that is the concern, and that's what people around the world so, are seeing. That's why we've been yeah. only with Israel at the UN when people have discussed this very issue. So I get that, and it'd be great if Hamas operated like any normal military uh, and had some sort of army base, and Israel could just go after them in their army base, but I I'm sure you wouldn't deny the fact that Hamas, as a matter of policy, embeds within the population of Gaza. And, you know, they have tunnels underneath. They use mosques. They use schools. I mean, this is just a matter of, of record. Reporters have been reporting on this since Hamas took over in 2006, 2007. So you say go after Hamas. Yeah, Hamas embeds with the people. Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, what you say, they, they have every right to go after Hamas. Hamas hides within the people, the, the populace. So, but, so then Jake, what should they do? More than just Even the president has said some of their bombing has been indiscriminate. Uh, and the president has been a strong supporter of Israel. This is a situation where Benjamin Netanyahu is going and I think doing collective punishment of all Palestinians. The fact that there are people in his cabinet 
talking about removing everyone from Gaza yeah, it's hideous. for good yeah. uh, is, is part of the problem that is there right now. And the U.S. interests have been very clearly stated by the president that a two-state solution that allows a state for Palestinians and Israelis is the, the option that we would like to see for peace in the region. But Benjamin Netanyahu doesn't support that. In fact, part of the problem was that we didn't have IDF soldiers uh, outside of Gaza the day of the attack because they were protecting uh, illegal settlements 100%. in yep. the West Bank. Yep, I'm not disagreeing with any of it. I'm just, we're not gonna solve the crisis today, but I, I guess the point is like, I hear what you're saying, but going after Hamas is, is easier said than done when they hide, when they hide among the people of, of Gaza. That's all I'm saying. I just think that's an easy talking point, but that's not the reality. Israel, as you and I both know, has some of the most intelligent intelligence and military on the planet. And yet these attacks have been so broad uh, and they've taken out so many uh, sure. healthcare facilities, schools, everything. And I do think it's important, Jake, to say, because this doesn't get said, Hamas is no friend of, of Palestinians in Gaza. You know, 90, 95% of the water is undrinkable uh, in Gaza prior to October 7th. Um, you know, the people in Gaza really are in a bad place. But you can't be fish in a barrel. And that's essentially what's happening right now with this broad bombing and moving people around. Two million people displaced out of 2.3 million yeah. people. I mean, these are conditions that we need to speak out more and make sure that it doesn't become a regional conflict because of the overly broad attack that's been coming uh, in response. I, I want a surgical response to Hamas, and that's what should happen. And we saw that happen in Beirut when they recently took out a leader but we're not seeing that on the ground in Gaza at all. Last point I'm going to make, and I think it's one you're not going to disagagree with, so I'm going, to, I'm, going to take it, I'm going to take my prerogative here, which is I don't know that Israeli intelligence in Gaza is as good as people thought it was, as proven by what happened on October 7th. Congressman Pocan, good to have you on, as always. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. Thank you. To the 2024 lead. Come on, guys. You know I like the election music. 2020. There it is. Thank you so much. Three days until the Iowa, and it's three days until Iowans caucus the night away. So let's refresh the collective memory on exactly how a caucus is different from a primary. Students Tom Foreman is here to explain. Tom, how exactly is this Republican caucus going to work? Well, when you hear Iowa caucuses, it's easy to imagine the crowded rooms, the shouted debates, the people rushing to stand for one candidate or the next. Forget all of that. That was the Democrats in years past. The Republican caucuses are much quieter affairs. How do they work? Voters will gather at caucus sites scattered across all 99 counties at 7 p.m. Monday evening, their time. They typically listen to short speeches in favor of the candidates. Then they cast paper ballots for a nominee. And importantly, although you can register at the site, the rules say you must bring an ID and you must be a registered Republican to take part in this vote, Jake, because this is very much a party activity of some of the most deep-seated Republicans. Tom, when the votes are counted, what happens next? Well, likely someone will get uh, the majority and they will declare himself, him or herself a winner, a winner taking the lion's share of Iowa's 40 delegates to the national convention. But this isn't a winner-take-all competition. Each candidate will get a proportion of the delegates based on their support at the caucuses. And since you need 1,215 delegates to win the nomination, you can see this is just a small start. And if you look at the Iowa caucuses winners on the GOP side over time, winning here, of course, does not mean a path to the nomination. In fact, for 20 years, only incumbent presidents have seen that happen, Jake.
So are there any particular wild cards uh, or curveballs anyone should look out for on caucus night? Yeah, of course. Any late surprises that might unsettle caucus goers. Remember, this is an in-person event and minds can change. And of course, the weather, that's the weather with the wind chill. It's going to be pretty tough out there on caucus night, especially maybe for some of the older voters there in Iowa. That could make a difference. Although, to be fair, these are Iowans. They've lived with these winters and this political system for a long time. They're not easily daunted. I can see them riding here saying, Marge, is that the precinct ahead? I think it is. And they will turn out. Jake? All right, Tom Foreman, thanks so much. We now turn to David Kochel, a veteran of Republican politics in Iowa for decades. David, do you think this extreme winter weather uh, is going to change the outcome of the caucuses and suppress turnout? Uh, I definitely think it's going to suppress turnout. I'm not sure it's going to change the results between the candidates, but it's a balmy 12 degrees right now, but it, we could be as low as 20 below, and that's a whole different kind of cold. Uh, real danger, uh, cars dying, batteries going dead, people going into a ditch, nobody to find them, uh, not, not to mention frostbite. So I think we're going to see a, a, a downturn in turnout. I usually don't say that because Iowans are pretty hardy, but it's cold. It's cold. We repeatedly hear that turnout obviously is critical. Um, where do you see enthusiasm or moment, or, or, or momentum rather, at this moment? enthusiasm and momentum. Who do you think is going to have the easiest time ra rallying their supporters to go caucus? Well, Trump is, himself is kind of a turnout machine, both for people who love him and for people who don't. So I think, you know, turnout is going to be respectable. Uh, Haley's had the momentum the last couple of months. She, you know, started slow in Iowa, didn't have a lot of money, very little staff. So she's built a pretty good uh, a run of months here where she's grown the staff. The AFP endorsement helps a lot. They've got a big organization that are helping her. DeSantis, though, has, has really built a very large organization. And while he hasn't had momentum in the polls, I do think that they've got a ground game. And when you're talking about this kind of extreme weather that might be an impediment for people to go out to the caucuses, having a real ground game should, should help. So I think everybody can make an optimistic case for how this is going to affect them. But uh, I think we just got to wait and see what happens on Monday. Iowa is generally known for allowing surprises, uh, Barack Obama or Rick Santorum or Mike Huckabee. But Donald Trump's dominance uh, seems to be on course to buck that trend, at least uh, according to the Des Moines Register poll, which is pretty tried and true, he, as he has done before, he has shattered so many other norms. Do you see any possible surprises coming Monday? Uh, yeah, we usually pack a surprise in there somewhere. I think you got two campaigns. You got Donald Trump against his expectations to see whether or not he breaks 50, as he has in the polling. And then you've got Haley and DeSantis kind of trying to resolve the, uh, you know, who gets the chance really to go on and take on Trump one-on-one. -on -one. We usually say there's three tickets out of Iowa. I'm thinking there's two this time because this race has to get down to one-on-one -on -one race or Trump versus the field, he's going to win every time. So if there's a path for anyone, they got to do really well in Iowa. They got to go into New Hampshire with some steam. And if someone can knock him off there and it looks like Haley has the high hand in New Hampshire, uh, that, that's the only thing I can see that's going to change the dynamic of this race in any significant way. What are the most important issues for Republican voters in Iowa, and are the candidates speaking to those issues? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think 
we, we certainly have a segment of Republicans who are kind of the Reagan conservatives who care about strong foreign policy. Nikki speaks to those people. I think DeSantis has been very effective talking about his record in Florida, but he also kind of has the culture war vibe to him. He's picked fights that he's won. Uh, he's also got uh, evangelical support out here with Bob Vanderplatz and Steve Dace and others. So I think he's he's been messaging specifically to them about things like the heartbeat bill. For Trump, it's really all about, you know, I did a good job for you when I was president. I'm going to bring the economy back. I can beat Biden. And, you know, that that's kind of where the message is for him. For him, it's it's the same show with, with Donald Trump in every rally. It's, it's almost like, uh, you know, going out and playing the hits over and over again. All right, David Consul, thank you so much. Try to stay warm. Coming up next, the first court hearing in Georgia after scandal rocked the election conspiracy case involving Donald Trump. This time it's the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, facing questions about uh, accusations of an inappropriate relationship with a special prosecutor that she hired. Stay with us. In our Law and Justice lead today, allegations of an improper relationship between two people leading Georgia's election subversion case against former President Donald Trump, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis, and her lead prosecutor. Today, the judge overseeing that case had something to say about those claims. CNN's Nick Valencia is outside the Fulton County Courthouse. No, Nick, what did the judge have to say, and, and what do we know about the, the accuracy, the truthfulness of these allegations? Well, Jake, we should start by saying that these are allegations at this point, and there is no direct evidence in this 127-page legal filing. We did reach out to Fonnie Willis's office, and they really didn't say much to us, only to say that they will respond in appropriate legal filings. We should mention we also reached out to Nathan Wade. He's not gotten back to us, but he was in court today for this motions hearing that you're talking about, this catch-all motions hearing, where this alleged improper relationship between Wade and the district attorney here in Fulton County, it came up. It was introduced by Steve Sadow, Donald Trump's attorney in this case. And Sato said that he's not yet adopted this motion because he just doesn't have all the facts. He wants the district attorney's office to respond. And they have said that they will do so in writing and they're going to get their chance to respond. A hearing has been set by Judge McAfee in this case for early to mid-February. Look, Jake, there's no overwhelming uh, legal consensus if these allegations are true, whether or not any crimes were broken. But everyone that we've spoken to, they agree that the optics in this are just horrible. In fact, there's some now high-level Democrats in this state who are calling Fonnie Willis to step down and recuse herself from this case. Earlier, we spoke to CNN legal analyst and former U.S. attorney here in Georgia, Michael Moore, who says that the best thing Willis can do right now for everyone is step down from this case. I'd tell her to get out of the case. Uh, I, I really think that the, this type of case, with this allega these allegations, um, this, this case is bigger than any one prosecutor. And I think probably to preserve the case and to show that what's of most importance to her is the facts of the Trump case as opposed to her uh, political career, if you will, at, the t at this moment. If Willis wasn't under a microscope already, she certainly is now. Jake. All right, Nick Valencia in Atlanta for us. Thanks so much. Coming up, tension at the border at a whole new level. Who has the authority in Texas, the state of Texas or the federal government? The bold move by the governor of Texas that raises a new debate, plus the astonishing factor, he said, is holding him back from shooting migrants dead. Stay with us. In our national lead today, Texas Governor Greg Abbott today defended his state's action to block the U.S. Border Patrol, a federal law enforcement agency, from accessing a, a section of the Texas-Mexico border. 
The audacious move angered the Biden administration and even caught Homeland Security officials by surprise. It's just the latest escalation in the contentious effort to curb migrant crossings in the U at the U.S. southern border. CNN's Rosa Flores is in Houston. And Rosa, why is Texas saying it has the right to block U.S. Border Patrol agents from parts of the border? Well, Jake, Texas Governor Greg Abbott says that Texas has the legal authority to restrict access to geographic areas of the state. And the Texas military department is doubly down on that, issuing a statement saying in part, quote, the current posture is to prepare for future illegal immigrant surges and to restrict access to organizations that perpetuate illegal immigrant crossings in the park and the greater Eagle Pass area. But here's the backstory of this latest feud between Texas and the Biden administration. On Wednesday, the state of Texas took custody and control of a public park in Eagle Pass. It surprised uh, officials there in the city of Eagle Pass, but the situation escalated when Texas military department members did not allow Border Patrol to gain access to that area. Now process this with me, because this is a state authority not giving a federal law enforcement agency, Border Patrol, access to the area where, the, where they inspect and apprehend uh, migrants who have entered the country illegally. This is the area where Border Patrol does that and they don't have access to it anymore. Now, the Biden administration is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene so that Border Patrol can regain access to this jurisdiction. And the White House also condemning this, issuing a statement saying in part, quote, Governor Abbott continues his extreme political stunts that not only seek to demonize and dehumanize people, but that also make it harder and more dangerous for Border Patrol to do their jobs. And Jake, it's important to note that the number of migrant apprehensions along the U.S. southern border has plummeted in recent weeks. You remember back in mid-December, the number of migrants crossing the border was about 10,000 per day. That has plummeted to about 3,000 per day. And that scene in Eagle Pass is the same. Uh, right now, it's about 500 migrants per day that are entering there through Eagle Pass, Jake. So Governor Abbott's been talking a lot about everything they're doing uh, to keep uh, undocumented immigrants, migrants from coming into the country, from coming into Texas. I want to play some sound that it was rather stunning. Uh, Governor Abbott talking about uh, one action that the state is not doing about the border. We are deploying every tool and strategy that we possibly can. The only thing that we're, we're not doing is we're not uh, shooting people who come across the border uh, because, of course, the Biden administration would charge us with murder. So I had to listen to that several times to make sure I heard that right. Is Governor Abbott really arguing that the only reason that he hasn't ordered Texas law enforcement to not fire upon desperate migrants and the only reason that, that they're not being murdered in cold blood by Texas law enforcement is because they fear they might be prosecuted by the Biden administration? Well, here's how Governor Abbott put it today during a press conference. He said that he was asked to distinguish what the state of Texas could do legally to secure the border. And so he listed that and what what was illegal, what he couldn't do. And the governor chose to use those words. Like you said, he chose to say that the state of Texas is not uh, shooting migrants because they, the state of Texas would then be um, uh, arrested for murder in, in that case. But here's how the governor defended his own words. Take a listen. I was asked to, to point out where the line is drawn about what would be illegal, and I pointed out something that is obviously illegal. 
And Jake, not only has the White House condemned the words used by the governor, but they've been widely condemned, the words that he used, um, not just by the White House, but by Mexico and other organizations. Yeah, how about, how about we don't kill innocent people because we're not barbarians? Rosa Flores in Houston, Texas. Thank you so much. Problems also plague my hometown city of Philadelphia. I'm going to talk to the brand new mayor who just assumed office last week and took a rather bold action herself. Stay with us. Last week, Philadelphia's 100th mayor, Sherelle Parker, was inaugurated, making history as the city's first woman and the city's first black woman to ever hold that position. One of her first acts as mayor was to issue an executive order declaring the current levels of crime in Philadelphia a public safety emergency. Comparing crime reports from 2022 to 2023, crime statistics by the Philadelphia Police Department show violent crimes went down from 22 to 23, while retail theft and stolen cars surged in 23. Joining us now, Philadelphia Mayor Sherelle Parker. Uh, mayor Parker, congratulations. Um, why did you make this your first act as mayor? Well, listen, it was very clear. I needed to send a strong message to the people of Philadelphia that we would make their public health and safety our number one priority. Uh, and quite frankly, uh, people across the city uh, have been publicly affirming uh, that action as we work to put together the comprehensive plan to address public safety. Our new police commissioner, uh, Bethel, along with our public safety uh, director working on confirmation and Adam Gear and the entire team, our director, Teal, and uh, looking forward to presenting a plan that will end the sense of lawlessness in Philadelphia and restore a sense of lawfulness and order in our city. Well, God it's bless. long overdue. Yeah, God bless and best of luck with that task. Um, gun violence obviously touches nearly every part of this country. Philadelphia, sadly, no exception. A 16-year-old boy right now in Philly fighting for his life. He was shot in the head last night, allegedly by an 18-year-old. The Philadelphia Inquirer reports that this shooting makes at least the fourth time in 10 months that a juvenile has been shot on SEPTA, that's public transportation, property. Um, what's your plan to reduce gun violence in Philly? We need a comprehensive approach. Uh, first, we have to acknowledge that we have a challenge and not engage in finger pointing uh, and employ the use of the convening power of the mayor. And that means every stakeholder uh, who has a role in helping us to address public safety, um, that's affordable housing, that's quality public education, uh, that's access to out-of-school activities, that is access to a proactive community policing presence in our neighborhood by law enforcement officers who are there as guardians and not warriors, getting to know the people they're sworn to protect and serve, but also understanding that we will have zero tolerance for any misuse and or abuse by our police department. But they also know they have a mayor who stood up, and I have not been afraid to say, I support the men and women who put their lives on the line to protect and serve us on a daily basis, and I will continue to do that as mayor of this city. But we need a comprehensive approach. We won't police our way out of it. Anyone, Jake, who's ever talking to you about this challenge, and they say that's the way, um, it's one of the tools, and we should use every tool in the toolbox. We will under a Parker administration, but it will be a comprehensive approach. Prevention, intervention, and enforcement. As a candidate running for mayor, you, you indicated you were at least open, open to the idea of reintroducing stop and fisk, frisk. That's the controversial practice of, of temporarily stopping, questioning, and searching anyone an officer suspects of a crime. 
Uh, you might recall former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg apologized in 2022 for using this tactic during his time in office. Um, he said he, he was apologizing because it did disproportionately end up affecting uh, men of color. Now that you're mayor, are you still considering uh, bringing uh, stop and frisk to Philly? So uh, nothing has changed about my perspective, uh, Jake. You heard me reference uh, what I've often referred to as Terry stops. A crime has to be committed, is being committed, or will be committed. That is information that the police department must have in order to lawfully uh, stop someone. I will ensure that every legal tool that is readily available to our uh, police department, that they employ everything that they possibly can that is legal and constitutional, and Terry stops are. Uh, and with that being said, we're going to work with our federal, state, and local partners at every level of government uh, to make our public health and safety our number one priority. So quickly, if you could, uh, in recent days, we've heard from for former First Lady Michelle Obama, Congressman James Clyburn, uh, Barack Obama, the former president, even Charlemagne the God expressing concerns uh, about what might happen in 2024. And some of them uh, fearful that the black community is not excited uh, and engaged uh, in terms of uh, turning out for President Biden in November, are you worried? Listen, Jake, I want to make this very clear. In the city of Philadelphia, our birthplace of democracy, we know Pennsylvania is the state at play, and Philadelphia's turnout and participation is crucial to this election. I will be doing everything that I possibly can to ensure that President Biden is reelected. We wholeheartedly and a thousand percent support the Biden-Harris team, and we know that they will continue to deliver infrastructure, jobs, education to help move the city of Philadelphia forward. One Philadelphia, a united city. It doesn't happen without the Biden-Harris administration reelected. All right. Philadelphia Mayor Sherelle Parker, thank you and best of luck to you. Coming up on uh, Sunday on State of the Union, Governor Ron DeSantis will join me just one day out from the uh, Iowa caucuses. Also, we're going to talk foreign policy with Senator Bernie Sanders. We're going to talk politics with Maryland Republican Governor Larry Kogan and veteran Democratic strategist David Axelrod. Sunday morning at 9 Eastern and noon only here on CNN. Then, of course, Monday, CNN's coverage of the 2024 Iowa caucuses will believe it begin at 4 o'clock Eastern here on CNN. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you Sunday morning. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.